Welcome to the CBA Championship Series on ESPN. This is the Washington Avenue Armory. We're in Albany, New York. The best of seven series gets underway between the Albany Patroons and the Wyoming Wildcatters. And welcome once again to the CBA on ESPN. Good afternoon. I'm Bob Lee. Our Championship Series preview on this day after. We hope you dropped your taxes into the mail. We will be taking a look at the two teams in this Championship Series. The incredible Albany Patroons and what they have done this year. The incredible Wyoming Wildcatters who have beaten and defeated a number of teams and odds to get to this point. The coaches in this championship series, they are household names. Bill Musselman of the Albany Patroons, Cassie Russell of the Wyoming Wildcatters. And we'll take a look at the fans. They could be a very large factor. All sports fans have heard about Albany and what the Patroons have done this year. We'll also be taking a look now at what they have done. They have put the best winning percentage of the season up on the record board at nearly 89%. Better than the Lakers, better than the 76ers. They have done it more often than not by a large margin. 19 of their victories during the regular season were by more than 20 points. The head coach of Albany, Bill Musselman, he has coached the last three championship teams in the Continental Basketball Association that is rather elite company, as you will see. And here on this home court, they have lost the Patroons only one game this year. It is the second best home court record of any team in pro basketball history. Kevin Loggery, what about the home court? This is an old building. It's got lots of character and ambiance, and the fans are right on top of the action. Bob, it's a great advantage because of the closeness of the fans. They're right on top of the play. When the team's not playing well in a situation like this, they can really emotionally get the team up and get them to play better. That happened last week. Albany came from 17 down to win that game. They are decided favorites of this championship series. The opposition, the Wyoming Wildcats, the Western Division champions of the CBA. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hello and welcome once again. It's a Good Seats Still Available, our curious little podcast journey each and every week into what used to be in professional sports. My name, as announced, is Tim Hanlon. I welcome you to the proceedings. Uh, thank you tremendously for finding us. We know you've got a zillion choices uh, out there in podcast land, and we're honored uh, that you would allow us to uh, entertain you and tickle your earbuds uh, for a little while uh, amidst all those other choices. So uh, we appreciate it. I think you're in for a treat this week. It is uh, a topic that uh, we've wanted to get into for quite some time, and we found the excuse and the uh, the person to do so. We're going to get into the Continental Basketball Association. You may remember it as sort of this ragtag minor league, if you will, feeder, if you will, of the National Basketball Association. And uh, it really was kind of in its heyday, if you could even call it that, in the 1970s and 1980s. It kind of limped along until the early 1990s. For various reasons, uh, it died an untimely death, a guy named Isaiah Thomas, sort of in the midst of all that. That's for another episode, another time. Uh, but our guest this week, David Levine, wrote a tremendous book that is sadly out of print. Uh, but uh, as you'll hear in our conversation, we're going to be on a, some kind of quest to kind of get it reissued. The book is called Life on the Rim, A Year in the Continental Basketball Association. Uh, it's a book that's been sitting on my uh, bookshelf for uh, 20 plus years now. And uh, it's always uh, a topic and a person that I've wanted to talk to. And since I've been doing this podcast for two years, it's been kind of something that's been uh, chafing at me as I whittle down my list to get into uh, to conversation about. So so David wrote this book and it was a, a major uh, publication. I think it was published by uh, Macmillan. Yeah, Macmillan. And by the way, we'll have a link to it uh, on Amazon. You can obviously get a used copy of it uh, at our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode. 
with David Levine. It's a, basically a year in the life of the Albany Patroons, which uh, exists today in a uh, even more minor league fashion. Uh, but the Albany Patroons of 1988-89, this is the season that uh, David Levine followed the team on, Albany was probably among the, if not the, most successful uh, of the CBA teams to play. Uh, there are a number of different uh, cities, uh, mostly smaller markets uh, around the country. But uh, the Albany Patroons uh, did quite well. And as you're going to hear in our conversation, uh, some very uh, uh, interesting names and personalities, including no less than George Carl, right? One of the uh, great uh, NBA coaches of all time, who uh, made not only one, but two appearances as coach uh, of this team in the CBA, the Albany Patroons. And it's a story not only of like what was going on with that team and that city, the sport of basketball generally, but also this wacky thing called the Continental Basketball Association that in some cases even struggled to be a minor league. But it did have its fits and starts in uh, sort of the big time and the the big national spotlight, not the least of which was uh, a little bit of that clip that you just heard at the opening of this little show here. Uh, That clip was from uh, April 16th, 1988 from ESPN. That was Bob Lee. Yes, a young Bob Lee with the coach, the old Nets coach, Kevin Lockery, calling the action for the CBA playoffs that year, including, of course, the Albany Patroons playing uh, in that series. It's a fascinating conversation. We get into the history of the CBA, uh, the Albany Patroons, if you will, the beginnings of, of minor league basketball. Uh, With our guest this week, David Levine, coming up in just a couple of seconds. Stay tuned. You're going to enjoy it. I guarantee. One quick promotional note. Let's get this out of the way. Uh, We've got a brand new sponsor, by the way, this week. Uh, We're going to you listen for that during the mid roll. It's our friends at the Great Courses Plus. Uh, You'll hear more about them there. But uh, check them out and make a note of this. TheGreatCoursesPlus.com slash good seats. And you're going to get a free month of an amazing array of college level lectures and teaching around a whole bunch of different topics, uh, history and science and law and economics and hobbies and food and wine and professional and personal development. And they've got a great new course that uh, is well worth the visit alone. And it's uh, devoted to baseball uh, and it's called play ball, the rise of baseball as America's pastime. It's created in partnership with the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. Uh, it is taught by the Hall of Fame's own Bruce Markison, and it's uh, 24 lectures deep into all of the uh, amazing, interesting, and uh, phenomenally intriguing uh, earliest days of baseball history, ranging from things like uh, that we've talked about here on this show, whether it be the uh, reserve clause or the early days of professionalism, Uh, in baseball, how the uh, ragtag amateur scene uh, matured and became professional baseball, the intertwining, if you will, of politics and baseball, the intertwining of the wars uh, that America has fought and the sport of baseball. Lots and lots and lots of very intriguing, highly uh, entertaining pieces of information and education around the sport of baseball. Again, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash good seats for your free month of that Uh, offering. It is uh, well worth checking out. You're going to get a free month of the entire catalog of the great courses across all of their uh, great subjects and topics. But uh, if for nothing else, uh, the entire baseball series of play ball, the rise of baseball's America's pastime uh, is yours to try for free when you go to the great courses plus dot com slash good seats. It's streaming video. It's online. You can also uh, use it as an app. Uh, It streams to any device. 
And uh, when you use that app, uh, you can uh, download it, of course, if you'd like, if you're not near an internet connection, so you don't necessarily have to stream it, you can download it in advance, or you can even use the app in audio-only fashion, uh, should you just want to listen uh, to some of these great courses. Again, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash goodseats, and you will get one free month of the entire Great Courses service. Well, I guarantee you'll enjoy it, if nothing more than for the baseball series alone. But I guarantee you're going to find a whole bunch of other other topics you'll be interested in, too. Again, one last time, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash good seats. They are a brand new sponsor of ours, and uh, we appreciate The Great Courses Plus for being uh, a new sponsor of our little show. We love it, and we love you for not only listening, but uh, hopefully enjoying this entertaining conversation about the Continental Basketball Association, the CBA, for God's sakes, can you believe it? Finally, with our guest, David Levine. And here is our chat. This uh, little show has spent uh, quite a bit of time uh, going down various memory lanes, uh, mostly cul-de-sacs, focused on, you know, teams and leagues and the various things that have uh, emanated from them. Uh, in some cases, actually still do. Maybe we'll get to that a little bit later in our chat as uh, further or future incarnations or or ongoing remembrances of of said uh, of said situations. But I guess before we sort of get into all the the frivolity, why don't you tell our uh, legions of fans? Well, I don't legions, but there's it's a growing number, surprisingly, who you are, what you do for a living, and maybe then we can use that as the backdrop for how uh, you stumbled into the topic that we're gonna we're gonna delve into today. Sure. My name is David Levine. Uh, rhymes with fine wine. I am a writer and editor. Uh, I've been a writer and editor my whole career, which is, well, the book's 30 years old, so it's unfortunately even more than that. In the early 80s and mid-80s, I was an editor and writer for, the, uh, for Sport Magazine, the late, great Sport Magazine. And um, so I wrote about all kinds of sports uh, and, of course, edited other packages of sports stories as well. And in the late 80s, um, I, I had contact with an agent that we had a sort of a working agreement with that if ever a good book idea came along, we would work together. So in 1988, I moved to Albany to take another job. And shortly thereafter, my agent, David Black, uh, was flipping through the newspaper and he saw that George Carl had been hired as the new coach of the Albany Patroons of the Continental Basketball Association. And he thought, that sounds like a book idea. So he called me. And that's really how the, the whole project started. Well, okay. So uh, before we get into some of the, the specifics of that, what, what, what was it about George Carl that, uh, that made that uh, sort of the hook, I guess? Well, George Carl was a known entity. He had been a coach in the NBA uh, two different teams up to that point. He was the youngest, I think at one point, the youngest coach in NBA history. He was 33, maybe something like that. He had been in Cleveland and in Seattle and he had had success in both places, but like all coaches, you know, success doesn't mean you're not going to get fired at some point. He got fired from both jobs for various reasons. And, uh, so he was known, um, the, the CBA, is not filled with known entities or wasn't filled with known entities. So that was kind of the hook here. We have a guy who has been around the block a few times and uh, you know, he's an interesting fella. He's got NBA experience. Why would he, he take a job in this minor league in Albany, New York? 
Yeah, that's interesting. So how then did you sort of get involved in this project? How does how does a book deal or or process uh, like this come into play once you and your agent stumble on this somewhat obvious or maybe not so obvious idea? So uh, the first job in uh, most book projects is to write a proposal. And to do that, I had to, of course, get permission from the team. Um, we conceived the idea that it would be pretty quickly a year with the team. I wanted to spend the season with them as close as I could and document what life is like in a minor basketball league. Um, you know, stories about the minor leagues have always sold well, mostly baseball. Bull Durham, of course, being the prime example uh, in their books about minor leagues as well, but been anything really about minor league basketball. So I approached the team owners and pitched the idea. I said I wanted to spend the season with them. I wanted full access. I wanted to travel with the team when I could. I wanted to be in the locker rooms. I wanted to be in the benches. I wanted to be at practices. And to their credit, they loved the idea. And they said, that's great, but you got to run it by the coach. So I went to the coaching office, the staff people, George, Carl, and his uh, assistant, Gerald Olive, and I pitched the idea to them as well. And again, to their credit, they loved it. They thought it would be a great idea. So from there, I did preliminary interviews. Um, the season had already sort of started. It was, um, they were in their uh, sort of rookie training, pre-agent camp really is what you'd call it, before their actual training camp had started. So there were some players in town already. Practices were running. Um, I got to interview George, I got to interview Gerald, I interviewed the front office staff and a couple of the players, and I put together a proposal very quickly. As I remember, it was probably done in a week. And it was, I don't know, 25, 30 pages. Hey, I'm sorry, this, this is 1988 to 1989 season, correct? Correct. Right. So uh, this is the fall of 1988. The season started in October. So yes, this was all done in October of 88. So I put the proposal together, I sent it to my agent, he sent it to various publishers, and uh, Macmillan Publishing Company bought it. Now, you sound surprised. Uh, why would you, <laughs> why, Macmillan uh, was, and I think still is, in some kind of imprint, uh, you know, a major publishing house. Yeah, no, I mean, I, surprised is not the right word. I was pleased, of course. It, this was my first book project. So this was new to me. Um, I didn't really know how it worked. I had no idea if it was going to sell or not. Uh, you know, even looking back now, I think it's great. Would a book like this sell today? I'm not so sure. You know, the business has changed so much that I don't know if anybody would risk any kind of money on a book like this. Now, this wasn't big money. Um, it was not a high risk for them, but still they agreed. So, um, you know, it, looking back on it, it was pretty seamless. It, it was almost like it, you know, I don't want to say it was destined to be, but uh, it all happened pretty quickly and pretty easily. So, um, every, all the pieces kind of lined up and it worked out really well. So as you, uh, sort of, uh, circle on, on Albany and, and, uh, and this story, right? How much, uh, of your framing of this going into this is informed by knowledge of pro basketball, the CBA specifically, uh, and, or how much of this is, do you, do you sense is going to be about the team, uh, in Albany, uh, and how much of this is going to be about this? A very interesting and checkered history uh, thing called the Continental Basketball Association, or is it even a bigger story than than that, like redemption and and falling out of favor and all that kind of stuff? What what was in your head going into to all of this process? So the first part of your question, you know, basketball is probably was probably my least favorite and least well known sport. 
I uh, covered a lot of baseball. I'm a hockey guy. I wrote a lot of hockey stuff. Um, there were other people at Sport Magazine who did the basketball, and it's never been my favorite sport. I don't really know all that much about it. So in some ways, I kind of that was good. I kind of went in uh, blank slate. I've also always been interested more in the people and the lifestyle of sports more than the games themselves. So being a minor league, the object always was to show what the life was like. Well, wins and losses are all you know, well and good, but we wanted to show what it was like for these guys, these young men, some of them just out of college, some of them a little bit older with NBA experience, uh, this coaching staff, one who was basically a minor league lifer, the other a seasoned NBA coach who would eventually go on to become one of the best NBA coaches in history. What's it like to live the life of a minor league basketball player? So my goal was to be as much a fly on the wall as I could. Um, that wasn't hard being that I'm five foot nine and they're all six foot four and up. So it was pretty easy to hide among them. But I really was sort of trying to stay in the background, record everything that happened and just put it down. It, it, it came to me pretty quickly that a diary format might be the best way to do this because every day is different in a sports season. Some days you're home, some days you're on the road, some days you're playing a game, some days you're not playing a game. The mundane life of the average worker is not <laughs> the life of a pro athlete. And when you throw in the life of a minor league athlete where there's no money and there's cheap travel and you're staying at third-rate hotels and eating fast food, you know, th this is just a, a wonderful world to explore. So that was the goal from the beginning. Well, it sounds sexy the way you're setting it up, and I'm sure it was <laughs> far from it once we get into the granulars. But but maybe before we get into some of the specifics of things of how they unfolded, uh, what of the CBA? What was this thing based on what you knew? It's pretty ragtag, and, and this relationship with the NBA has been, you know, was on again, off again, not necessarily official. I mean, you're mentioning minor league basketball, right? The CBA has had a, had a very checkered history both before, during, and after uh, this year that uh, you're, you're following the Patroons. That's absolutely right. Um, the CBA itself was named as such uh, around 1982, I think, but it was actually sort of the evolution of the Eastern Basketball League, which had been around since just after World War II, as my memory serves, like 46 or 47. Um, it was, you know, a ragtag minor league uh, based in the East as the name would imply, um, they eventually got a team in Alaska. And uh, funny thing was that the commissioner at that point thought they'd still call it the Eastern Basketball League, even though they had a team in Alaska. They thought that would generate some press. It's kind of like the Big Ten having 14 teams, I guess. But um, eventually they changed the name to the Continental Basketball Association. So the league itself had been around for a long time by the time it got to the early 80s. Um, well, actually, that was the late 70s. Albany got its team in the early 80s, around 1982. Uh, it was the brainchild of sort of the local politicians who wanted to inject a little more life into downtown Albany. Uh, they had this ramshackle arena called the Washington Avenue Armory that had a basketball floor on it. And they thought, well, if we get a team and we can, you know, put 30 games a year, we'll bring people downtown. They'll support the bars and the restaurants, and it'll just add a little more life to the city. And it worked out better than they ever imagined, at least for a short time. Yeah, well, well, you were walking into a team, actually, having gotten it started in 82 or so, that already had, uh, if you will, if you could sort of say this with the CBA, a 
uh, a, a relatively stable level of success on the court, as well as uh, as uh, support from the fans in Albany. Yeah, absolutely. Albany was kind of the crown jewel of the league during those years. Players wanted to play here. The ownership was fairly financially stable, and that's no small thing in a minor league like this where teams come and go sometimes in the middle of the night. It wasn't unusual for teams to fold up in the middle of the season or move in the middle of the season. Albany never had that problem, at least during the 80s. Um, they had a great fan support. Albany is a good sports town. Um, it's only two hours or so from New York City, and there are a lot of people here working for state government who came from New York and were big sports fans of the New York teams, and they were looking for something local. Um, and the team had success right from the beginning, uh, not in small part due to the fact that the second year they hired a coach named Phil Jackson, who uh, turned out to be Phil Jackson. Back then, he was just a new coach at the Albany Patroons, and he delivered a championship in 84, which was, I think, their third season. So they were the toast of the town. And from that success, I mean, they always drew good crowds, but then they drew bigger crowds and they filled the armory. And it really became the place to play in the CBA. So do you think it was their success was the fluke of the success of Phil Jackson? Or do you think some of it was engineered and and uh, and smarts that kind of got them or maybe a confluence of the two because i'm trying to figure out sort of and i try to sort of piece this together as as, as i you know go through the book and and this entire season that you you outline how much of this is you know masterminding from a uh, a well thought out process and plan and ownership structure uh and how much of this is frankly just you know luck especially in a league that's been at least at this point relatively shaky it's mostly dumb luck, and the people behind the team might disagree with that, but, I mean, you're talking about uh, an ownership group of maybe two um, who have no experience in running a sports team. Um, they were the, the Albany County executive and uh, another guy who um, it was a former athlete who had a cup of coffee in, the major, league, in major League Baseball but had no real experience running a sports team. They were making it up as they went, um, which is not unusual in a league like this. It's a lot of people who are just hoping this thing works, and oftentimes it doesn't. So it was luck. And, you know, they hired Phil Jackson just kind of on a whim. He hadn't been retired that long. They had no real um, thought that he would accept their offer. They had a coach earlier, a guy named Dean Memager, who you may remember. He was a New York Nick. Uh, they wanted to play off the Nick connection because Albany is close to New York and there were a lot of Knicks fans. So they tried Memager. He didn't work out. So uh, they contacted Jackson. And again, they really didn't think he would take the job because why would he? And it turned out he did. Now, is he going to be a good coach? Who knows? It turns out he's a great coach, and he's able to get some good players, and he delivers a championship team his second year. So, I mean, it was a good guess, I guess, is the best you could say. I wouldn't call it a well-thought-out scheme or plan, and I don't think the, the people behind it would do that either. For our, our, our ardent uh, listeners uh, listening carefully, Memager is uh, a name from the World, uh, not World of Women's Basketball League from the late 70s, early 80s as well. So uh, trying to play some various carousel games, I guess. But th that doesn't mean that the team uh, is going to sell in the t in the city, right? I mean, I, so there's got to be some kind of success or or thought about how to promote the game. I mean, 4,000 seats, right, doesn't seem to be a lot. But I guess in, in Albany, it kind of does, right? And there's sort of this desire to sort of rehabilitate or bring people in or keep them in downtown 
uh, for a series of dates, and especially in the cold winter months. Did the team just promote itself, so to speak, by playing so well, or, or was there really well-thought-out marketing as part of this mix as well? No, there was not well-thought-out marketing. It kind of went word of mouth. Um, Albany it didn't have much else to, mark, to, to sell itself. I mean, it's not like there was a whole lot of competition. There were some college teams in the area, but there were no other pro sports teams at the time. Um, it's a good basketball town. Uh, Siena College and the University at Albany have decent basketball teams. Um, again, all the New Yorkers who moved up here who were Knicks fans. So it's got a good basketball fan base in general. So, but I think at first it was curiosity, um, something to do when there isn't a whole lot to do, like you said, in Albany, New Yorker. And the basketball was good. That was also an important part of it. I mean, you have to remember that in those days, this was the best minor league. It's not anymore, but it was, it had people who had been in the NBA and, may get back. It had other sort of younger players who eventually would make it to the NBA. So these guys were good players. This was seriously good basketball. Um, having success definitely helped. I mean, if the team had gone, you know, 10 and 30 its first year and, and 12 and 28 the next year, would the crowds have come? Hard to say. Probably not. But the fact that they won and then they won a championship their second year, uh, it gave Albany a lot of pride. And, and uh, as you said, the gym only sat 3,000 people, um, so it wasn't that hard to fill. You could find 3,000 people who were willing to spend whatever it was, three bucks, four bucks a ticket, and see some pretty high-quality basketball on a winter's night. So you're coming into this story uh, a year removed from uh, the team's second championship, right? So in 1988, uh, the Patroons won the CBA title uh, with their then-head coach, Bill Musselman, who I guess went on to other things, right, to allow uh, George Carl to step Yeah, Musselman coached one year after Jackson retired, or Jackson retired. <laughs> Jackson went on to coach the Chicago Bulls, far from retired. Um, Musselman stepped in for a year, and he, uh, I missed the best story by a year, probably. That year was apparently, by all uh, accounts, the craziest, wildest, most intense year ever. Bill Musselman was essentially a martinet. He drilled players endlessly. He uh, took no prisoners. He rode everyone, you know, to near exhaustion, and he delivered a championship. So uh, one of the players on that team was Murray Richardson. And uh, after the year ended, and um, you know, they they took their trophy and they're saying goodbyes. The, the story goes that Richardson walked up to Bill Musselman and said, "I have two things to say for you. Say to you, thank you, and fuck you." And then he walked away. <laughs> so, so that was an intense, that was a wild season. But yes, so Musselman moves on. He becomes a head coach in the NBA. And that's what opened the door for George Carl. Interesting, too. And if I have my, my uh, data correct, it was, um, I don't know if it was his direct uh, relationship or maybe the Patroons had one, but uh, the Minnesota Timberwolves was where he went next, not immediately, but after a number of months. And it looks like a number of the Patroons from that championship season, including uh, Sidney Lowe and Scott Brooks and a couple of others went on to the Timberwolves to uh, in those early years of that franchise in the NBA. Yep, that's right. He took some players with him. So that also opened the door for some new players into the Albany franchise. So it really was, uh, there were some holdovers. A couple of players stayed on from that year. But it was really a, a pretty much a new roster, new coaching staff, um, a new beginning for the Patroons. And, you know, as you know, who knows how that's going to work. Now, getting George Carl, a known entity, uh, certainly gave them a leg up. And it turned out to be a, a great move because 
having the NBA contacts and the NBA experience that George had, you know, he knew who was out there. He knew the players that were available and he managed to get some good ones. All right. So you're moving to Albany. It's, it's brand new for you, right? I'm, I'm assuming uh, you probably had no previous experience with uh, the capital region. What are you walking into and, uh, and, and where do you start? Um, well, like I said, the, the first job was to go to the front office and say, I want to do this book and get there. Okay. Get the coaching staffs. Okay. Uh, sell the proposal and then just start hanging out. Um, you know, uh, I'd go to practices. I'd uh, go on the road when I could. The advance wasn't big enough that I could go on every road trip, but I went on, I think, three out of five road trips, something like that, uh, and then hang out with the players afterward. I'd go out with them um, either to dinner. Um, I'd interview them before. We'd travel on the road together, and I got to know some of them very well. And uh, again, it was really just I wanted to be a tape recorder, and I would hang out with my little reporter's notebook and my bulky cassette tape recorder. Again, this is the 1980s, so the digital world hasn't come yet. Um, And I would take notes. Uh, I would run off to the side and scribble notes when nobody was looking. I would have my tape recorder hidden behind my back during um, coaching sessions or, you know, during games, halftime speeches. I would just click the red button and record it and uh, try to be as inconspicuous as I could be. And then I would run home and transcribe all my notes and throw it into my little Mac 2 computer and uh, type it up as I went. And and how much trust did players and administrators and coaches and people around the league uh, give you? Were they sort of giddy at the fact that, you know, this was the, uh, an actual book being devoted to them and, and, the, and the, the team and the league? Uh, or were they a little wary of, of seemingly another beat reporter, so to speak, that maybe they didn't feel like they wanted to share their most inner thoughts with? It, most people were very open because, uh, again, in the minor leagues, when you say beat reporter, a lot of teams didn't have a beat reporter. They wouldn't get any coverage at all. Albany had, I think, one newspaper reporter, a guy named Tim Wilkin from the Albany Times Union, who covered the team fully. The other local newspapers would cover it sporadically. The TV stations would report the game scores, but they almost never went to uh, interview the players. You know, they'd send a cameraman and get some game film, and they'd do their 15 seconds of game reporting on the nightly news. Um, And that was the best franchise in the league. A lot of places had very little to no exposure. Um, So people were happy to talk. You know, it's not like the NBA where they, they got things to hide and they're surrounded by 15 reporters every minute. These guys wanted some press, a lot of them, not all of them, of course. Some, some were a little wary and some either were shy or just didn't want to participate. But for the most part, they were pretty open to me. What did you find the quality of play to be and the work ethic and, you know, just the general day-to-day life of, of being a player in the CBA? Because one thing that, that, that among many that sort of emanate from, from this book is it's it's a tenuous, you know, existence trying to make it to the show. You're not sort of living high on the hog, so to speak. Per diems only get you so far. And, you know, and you're also trying to string along this dream, which may or may not be in the realm of possibility. And uh, maybe a little sense of sort of the constellation of folks that you're coming into contact with. How much of them are sort of living on a dream that's sort of never really going to happen? And how much of them are are really kind of, you know, onto something and just need to be patient and, and work on, on what they need to do. Yeah, well, that's why the book is called Life on the Rim. Um, they're really on the edge, all of these 
people, the players and the coaches. Uh, the quality of basketball is good, but, you know, not quite good enough to make the NBA. Some of them do get called up. Uh, back in those days, you could be signed for a 10-day tryout, essentially. Uh, or, of course, you could be signed for the rest of the season. And players did go up for 10 days on occasion, but they often didn't stick. So they might be filling in for somebody who was injured. Um, so so the, the point is, you know, they were good enough to be the 10th, 9th, 8th guy on the bench in the NBA, which means they're really good. But they weren't quite good enough to stick for a variety of reasons. The lifestyle is really what interested me and, and what I think is the key to the book, because these guys are making, I, th- I think, about $450 a week uh, per diem is, you know, they're eating at Popeye's and McDonald's. Uh, there's one game where the, the, the opposing team brings in pizzas and the coach yells at them, all right, everybody gets one piece because otherwise it won't be enough for everybody else. And that's their dinner. Now, these guys are, you know, 6'2 to 6'11. They've just played 48 minutes of serious basketball, and they get one piece of pizza after the game. It's tough, and it's draining, and there's an expression that everybody talked about called the CBA blues, which is when, you know, you're in the depths of winter. It's January. It's February. You're slogging through dismal towns and airports and van rides, and uh, you're not making any money. And you're seeing other players maybe get called up and you're not getting called up or maybe you're not even playing and you're wondering, is this all worth it? Um, you know, there, there's one scene where uh, the team got snowed in at O'Hare Airport and the league wouldn't, you know, charter them a plane. Of course, they didn't have the money. So they basically had to walk back and forth between Eastern Airlines, no longer with us anymore either, and some other airlines trying to get a flight to their next destination. And, and one of the players is dragging his luggage and he's saying, I can't believe I'm doing this. I had a good job at UPS. My agent, you know, said, try one more year, give it a shot. And now he was speaking in a little more colorful language than I am, but he's, you know, basically saying, this isn't worth it. I don't know why I'm doing this. This is crazy. He ended up being called up to the Celtics later in the year. So it was worth it for him. And he got signed to a season contract of a hundred and something thousand dollars a year. So, you know, for him, it worked out, but for all the other 11 or 12 or 15 players who came through the patroons who didn't get called up, their life was slogging through airports, dragging their luggage, checking into holiday inns and Howard Johnson's motor lodges, getting stuck in snow drifts, having vans break down along the highway. And that's when the CBA blues sets in. And that's where I think the book really, you know, did what I wanted it to do was to show that the glamorous life of pro sports is in many ways not glamorous at all. All right, time to pay a couple of bills around here. Uh, We welcome uh, with open arms our friends at uh, The Great Courses Plus. How can I best describe The Great Courses Plus? How about this? Unlimited video learning with the world's greatest professors. Yeah, it's an amazing video streaming site uh, available in app form. You can watch it online. Uh, You can stream it to any device, and it is courses uh, from some of the best professors uh, and uh, lecturers around the country in a whole host of topics Uh, Almost like college in a box, if you will, you know, things you want to learn about history or science, food and wine, hobbies, everything that you might be interested in without the tests, if you will. Uh, There's no grading whatsoever, but uh, some amazing coursework, including 
uh, their first real deep dive into the realm of sports, which I think will be especially interesting to our listeners. And here it is. It's called Play Ball, the Rise of Baseball as America's Pastime. And it's created a partnership with the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. It is uh, taught by the uh, Hall's expert there on all things uh, baseball history, Bruce Markison. And uh, there are 24 lectures, uh, maybe even a few more, if I'm not mistaken, uh, that sort of traverse the uh, early history of the sport of baseball in this country. A a bunch of things that broached the topics that uh, we've talked about here on this little show. There's uh, a lecture devoted to the uh, early era of uh, amateur baseball clubs and another lecture devoted to how they coalesced into uh, finally forming uh, what now is uh, known as organized baseball. Uh, we, there's a lecture devoted to uh, the World Series and how that got developed. There is uh, an episode uh, devoted to uh, the early ballparks of baseball called Sacred Ground. And it's just a whole host of things. Black baseball before the Negro Leagues. Uh, you name it. Uh, about the earliest days and the uh, formative years of baseball's history. You will find it in this uh, uh, tremendous course. Again, it's called Play Ball, the Rise of Baseball as America's Pastime. And again, it's created in partnership with the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. And it is yours to try and listen to and view for free. Yeah, for free. An entire month's worth of The Great Courses Plus is available to our listeners. When you go to this great here website, it's called thegreatcoursesplus.com slash good seats. Again, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash good seats. And using that URL, you will get nowhere else will you get this offer. One free month of the entire service that the Great Courses Plus offers. That's all the topics, all the different courses and lectures. You can download them. You can listen to them in audio only format or watch them in video streaming on any device you want. But if you do nothing else, take advantage of that free month and watch every episode of Play Ball, The Rise of Baseball is America's Pastime. I guarantee you'll find it interesting. I'm about three or maybe and a half, I guess, lectures into it. And uh, I can't wait to finish them all off again. That's the great courses plus dot com slash good seats. You're going to get a free month of the entire great courses service. And it's only yours for a limited time. So give them a try. We appreciate you doing so. And we also appreciate your listening to the rest of our conversation right now. Maybe it's a good time to sort of discuss uh, from your perspective what the relationship was between the CBA and the NBA. I think there's a generation of basketball fans that kind of always think, you know, thought that the, the the G League or the D League, whatever it was, you know, what's called over the number of years, you know, which is a relatively new construct of the NBA to sort of create, develop, perhaps maybe someday uh, become a true uh, parallel alternative to the college basketball machine, uh, but that's owned and operated by the NBA today. This is this was not the case back then. Correct. This was an independent league. They got some money from the NBA. The NBA supported them, uh, for which money they each NBA team had rights to certain uh, CBA teams' players. And they could, when they wanted, call up a player and, again, sign them to a 10-day contract or, if they wanted to, sign them for the rest of the year. Players come and go all the time. That's another thing that makes the CBA so dramatic is that this 10 team, this 10 man team probably had 20 guys over the course of the season come and go. They're in, they're out almost daily. Sometimes they don't even last more than a day or two. 
They come in, they're called up to the NBA, they're traded, they quit. Um, it's a very precarious lifestyle. And, and that's part of, you know, being life on the rim. They don't know who's going to be here the next day. Sometimes, you know, if players get hurt, they got to find somebody else. Sometimes on short notice, they might call in a local player. In fact, the Albany called in uh, Lowe's Moore a couple of times, who you mentioned. He had played for Musselman and for Phil Jackson, but he was pretty much retired. He still lived in the Albany area, and a couple of times, George Carl would just call him up and say, Lowe's, you want to go for a run tonight? And he'd show up, and he'd put on a uniform, and he'd play. So that's the kind of lifestyle, you know, these guys are living. How would you describe the, the composition of the, of the player pool? A bunch of, I guess, more, more pointedly, what's the ratio of players on the way up versus the ratio of players on the way down or, or never really going further? Hmm, that's a tough one. I would say most of the players, you know, it's probably an even split. Um, there are a couple of guys who are older and coming on the way down. Uh, the Patroons signed a guy named Greg Ballard, who had actually won a championship, an NBA championship with Washington, I believe, or Baltimore. I can't remember which one. So, you know, he was in his mid-30s. Obviously, the best days of his career were behind him, but he still wanted to play. So he showed up. That's a guy I guess you'd say is on the way down. Kelvin Upshaw uh, was a young guard who um, had a good year or two, but didn't really stick. There was a guy named Vince Askew on the Patroons this year, who um, he was definitely a guy who was on the way up. He, he was probably the best natural talent that the Patroons had that year. Um, but he had some issues coming out of college. He um, had some you know, motivational problems. George Carl kind of whipped him into shape and he ended up having a pretty decent career. Uh, he was never a star in the NBA, but he played a half and do half a dozen years with a couple of teams and ended up making, you know, a nice living and uh, becoming a solid NBA player. So, you know, you had them both. And then there was the really interesting guys were the guys who weren't going anywhere. And those were the guys that I liked to write about. Um, you know, they just, they maybe didn't have a great college career, they wanted to see if they could just hang on a little bit longer, maybe make a little money uh, at the CBA, and if not the NBA, maybe get a contract in Europe, which of course was an option for many of these players, and, and European leagues played, paid very well, as they still do. So some guys did go to Europe during the course of the year. Um, but the majority of these guys, you know, this is kind of the end of their line. They, they play a year or two in the CBA. They realize this is as good as I'm going to get. And then they go get real jobs. Um, you know, you can't blame them if they're just out of college or 22, 23, 24, you give it a shot. But as we all know, being a professional athlete is not easy and being an elite professional athlete is nearly impossible. So most of the guys in the league are guys you've never heard of and you never would have heard of. Um, they were just basically trying to do, uh, to carry their career as far as they could and CBA was as far as they could. All right. Well, so another interesting aspect of all this, right, is the CBA had a bunch of different sort of rules uh, to kind of, you know, distinguish it a little bit from sort of the sort of garden variety NBA game and, and maybe even aid a bit in, in player development. Right. So one of the interesting uh, facets of that, perhaps the most in my mind, is the sort of uh, uh, playing for every quarter, basically getting credit or points uh, for winning a quarter versus you know, maybe sandbagging a game if you're way behind and, you know, it just becomes boring for the fans, if you will, if that's, you know, if it's effectively a, a, a game that's, you know, kind of already over. But the idea of, of making every sort of quarter of the game 
interesting and uh, and worth something. Yeah, the league tried really hard to keep it interesting, like you said. And uh, the commissioner at the time was a guy named Jim Drucker. And George Carl hated all these silly gimmicks. He called them Druckerisms. And like you said, the the games weren't strictly won or lost. There was a point system. You get a point for every quarter you won, so uh, up to four points, and then three points for winning the game. So a game, you know, if you sweep all four quarters and you win the game, you get seven points. The object, as you said, is to keep people interested. You know, if you're getting blown out in the third quarter, you still have a chance to get that one point in the fourth quarter. They wouldn't let anybody foul out also, mainly because the rosters were so small. But if a guy got to his uh, foul limit, he could still play, but the other team got uh, technical free throws. So uh, people really never fouled out of a game. So they tried all these gimmicks. They had fan gimmicks. They they were the league that invented the million-dollar uh, half-court free sh- throw shot from a fan during halftime. Um, yeah, it was all, uh, you know, in some ways, you know, they were a little advanced. You see a lot of this stuff in minor leagues all over the place. Now you go to a minor league baseball game and, and you, pr- you can't get through a half inning without some fan interaction game or contest. Uh, the CBA tried all of these things. Some worked, some didn't, but they did try to keep the fans interested. Yeah, they didn't want, you know, arenas to empty halfway through. Their crowds were already small. So uh, they tried to keep people interested, and, and for the most part, it worked pretty well. Yeah, that point system's interesting uh, for our uh, uh, eagle-eyed uh, soccer fans out there. The old North American Soccer League uh, quite, did a quite a bit of that. Obviously, a sport that uh, could easily, uh, and still frankly does, sort of uh, uh, devolve into sort of uh, you know defensive uh, uh, battles of zero-zero scores. You know, the idea of adding, uh, you know, I think it was six points for a win, and then you get uh, a point for each goal scored. So even if you're b- behind the, in the game, you can still at least get a point or two or three uh, in a losing effort. And in many respects, I think you could sort of look at this as uh, as being helpful for some of today's games, too. I, I, these are a little bit ahead of their time, but I, in terms of fan excitement, and, and, and God forbid you actually think about now with betting becoming more of a mainstream and legal thing, Betting is being done on on these kinds of things anyway. How I many people are going to score points in a particular quarter and and that kind of stuff anyway? So I, it's interesting. I think Adam Silver uh, in his uh, commentary a couple of days ago, sort of about I guess state of the league and stuff. I, he was kind of pinching himself or knocking on wood, saying that uh, things are going pretty darn well for him right now and and the league. But uh, you know, I think they're very very interested in experimenting with a whole bunch of things. And, you know, arguably you could look back to some of the interesting innovations of the CBA and maybe, you know, in a tournament fashion or maybe in the D or G leagues, uh, give them another whirl. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, as we all know, our attention spans are short. There are distractions everywhere. Uh, People can turn on a dime. If you're not entertaining them pretty much constantly, they're going to look elsewhere. Uh, They got cell phones, you know, they got their computers. I don't want to sound like a crotchety old man, but um, the fact is that it's hard to keep people's attention. So yes, they have to try everything, including uh, the biggest leagues, you know, the, the NBA, the NHL, major league baseball, they're all throwing out every bell and whistle they can think of to keep players or keep fans attention. All right. uh, A whole bunch of things. We go sort of randomly here. So what about travel? Um, I I look at the, the league uh, and the way it was constituted uh, in the 1988-1989 season, and the Patroons um, winning the Eastern Division, they were they were part of the six-team six-team Eastern Division, and there was a another six-team division in the West. But I, I can al- already sense what uh, shall we say interesting travel uh, might have been. Uh, you look at the uh, Western Division; uh, their teams are relatively geographically close to each other. I think. 
you know, Quad City and, and Rapid City, South Dakota and Rockford, Illinois and Cedar Rapids, La Crosse, Wisconsin, Rochester, Minnesota. Those are those feel like bussable and or maybe prop planable. But when you look at the Eastern Division, I don't know how much you remember this, but Albany and Tulsa and Pensacola, Topeka, Kansas, Charleston, South Carolina. I mean, you know, it seems like uh, the burden was greater on the Eastern Division teams, inclusive of, of Albany. Uh, for travel relative to their Western division brethren. That's true. Uh, but also the, the league had gotten to the point now where, where the teams in the East could all fly. You know, the early days of the CBA and certainly in the Eastern league, it was a bus league, uh, bus and van. You know, they, sometimes the players would drive themselves and the coaches would drive and uh, nobody had enough money to fly. The Patroons flew everywhere. Now, part of that includes because they're playing in small cities, that means flying to Chicago and then taking a bus or a van to Rockford, Illinois, or flying to, you know, a bigger city and then taking a bus to the nearby smaller city. Um, the travel was really tough. In fact, one of the things that I remember from those days was just how taxing travel is on athletes. I mean, it was taxing on me and I wasn't a full-time athlete. I wasn't practicing. I wasn't playing. I wasn't six foot nine trying to sit in a coach airline seat after a game. Um, it's exhausting. And especially when you do it on the cheap, like the CBA did, you know, you're in planes that uh, are late. They, they get snowbound. You get thrown into a van. Uh, there was one time where we were taking a van to a game and the tire blew and it was uh, somewhere, I think it was in Iowa, and it was, it was below zero, and it, no cell phones, and they're on their way to a game, and you know what do you do? You're stuck on the side of a highway, it's 12 below zero. <laughs> the driver was some kid from the other team, he says, I'll go get help, he jumps out the van, he flags down a car, happens to have a pretty woman driving it, and off he goes. So here's the team all sitting in this bus on the side of the road, no idea if they're ever going to see this guy again. You know, they could be, there. they could still be there. They're taking bets. You know, are we ever going to see this guy? And one, one player says, no, I think he just quit. Uh, we're never going to see him. They don't know what to do. Now, eventually the kid did come back with a repair with a replacement van and got them to the, to the arena. But that was not an unusual occurrence. Yeah. I, and I guess the meals uh, weren't necessarily the highest quality to perform at an elite level, if you will, on the court uh, either. Right. No, no, no. It was fast food all the way. Um, you know, you'd, they'd leave a game, they'd head to the airport, and they'd take a vote. Burger King or, Burger King or Popeye's. And whoever, you know, got the vote won. Um, it was junk food. Uh, it was hotel food. It was whatever they could scrounge. They did not get pregame meals. Again, you know, maybe the opposing team would throw a pizza at them after the game if they were lucky. Um, now, in Albany, they, there were local establishments that would help them out. They'd give them meal coupons. There were a couple of bars and restaurants that would cater to the team. And all the teams have this. You know, of course, there are always boosters in every town that want to support the team and help out. So they would help them find apartments and, you know, maybe knock something off the rent. They would give them coupons so they could eat half price. Uh, they might throw, you know, a free, a free meal at them now and then or a couple of free beers after a game. But uh, they're living really hand to mouth. I mean, these guys would run out of money often. They would hound Gerald Oliver, who was the assistant coach and uh, essentially the manager of all the business that had to be transacted, letting George Carl just be the coach. And they were always complaining about where their money was. Uh, you know, Albany, as you said, being a financially stable organization, they got paid when they were supposed to get paid. Not every team 
could say that checks are often late. Checks might bounce. Uh, that again, that wasn't true in Albany, but it certainly was true around the rest of the league. Um, so it's a it's a hand to mouth, again, very unglamorous lifestyle. And and I think the book, you know, I hope captured a sense of that. Well, explain to me then the sort of how you found George Carl in all of this as you started and as the season ran on, because you know I, you know, here's a guy who you know, two years prior was, you know, with Golden State and the NBA and, and in the playoffs, right? You know, playing against the LA Lakers in the semifinals and, you know, uh, arguably on, on the ascendance, right? And yes. the following year, you had Chris Mullen, who was, you know, the, the, the then sort of star in waiting with the Warriors, who was having his own uh, issues, I guess, with rehab, uh, alcohol and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, and, and the players, uh, yeah, his team was not nearly as good or performing as well as that playoff season the year before. Uh, there's debate whether he was fired or he, he quit, but you know, here he does, here he comes and shows up in Albany, right? Which I'm sure is what attracted you and your, your publisher and your agent to the story. But how do you find him psychologically at the beginning of your journey? And maybe perhaps as the season progressed, as you sort of outlined in the book, uh, cause I can't imagine, uh, that at least in the beginning, it, it's, uh, necessarily one of, uh, of, of unbridled optimism <laughs> given where he came from. Uh, no, well, the, George at least had coached in the CBA before, before he, you know, became an NBA coach. He was a coach for three years in Montana. Um, so, you know, it, this wasn't entirely new to him, but after whatever it was, three or four years in the NBA, he was a little shocked a lot of times. Uh, and there's some several scenes in the book where, you know, he just, in fact, here, I'm, I'm just flipping through the book and, and here this sort of explains how he felt. This is after uh, they won a game um, in Albany. But the CBA, as uh, we, we haven't really talked about the style of play, as, as good as these players are, they're not NBA caliber in many ways, and one of those ways is structure. This is a league where everybody wants to shoot. It's, it's re- pretty much street ball in many ways. Um, a lot of three-pointers, a lot of selfish play. Defense comes and goes, mostly goes. Uh, everybody wants to score. Now, of course, the NBA doesn't work that way. So after this one game, they win, but, and I'll read from here, it says, for Carl, the victory is draining. Everything he believes in, patience, defensive control, sound fundamentals, keeps being tested by lousy refs, selfish play, and outrageous threes. As he sits on a folding chair, beer in hand, suffering from the flu, just outside the locker room in the basement of the armory, amid reporters and fans and players and friends, Newsom, who's a player on the other team, walks out of his locker room. He's still in uniform, carrying his game shoes in one hand, ready to board the van back to the hotel. He limps gingerly up the stairs, alone, looking like a lost child. Carl watches him go. He sips at his beer and leans back in his chair. He shakes his head and says softly, a different world. So he was often trying to come to grips with where he was. There were times when he would take it humorously. There was one time I remember him saying, I can't believe I'm living in a Fellini movie. Uh, and there were other times where he just got so fed up with it that he, he really couldn't put up with it. Another trip we were on a bus somewhere and the players were bitching and moaning and yelling at each other and the bus stops at a red light and he tells the bus driver to open the door and he just gets out and he walks back two and a half miles to the hotel because he just can't put up with it anymore. So that was a fascinating look because the juxtaposition of his NBA experience and the CBA bullshit, which he called it all the time, 
drained him and wore on him. And part of his mission the whole season was to get these guys to understand that if they wanted to make the NBA, they had to change their attitudes, they had to change the way they played, and they just basically had to change their whole manner. Some guys could, a lot of guys couldn't. And that was his battle as a coach, but it was also a battle that he sort of fought internally, trying to keep everything as professional as he could and as he knew it had to be in a world that just was not professional at all. Yeah, there's a there's a picture uh, in in the book. George Carl is a uh, it's uh, in between uh, a place and uh, he's got the team sort of around him. He's on his knee and he's trying to explain a couple of a uh, couple of things to the players. And uh, the uh, caption says, "Coach Carl stresses defense, discipline, and teamsmanship, three elements of the game rarely seen in the CBA." Uh, yep, that's which, it. Which is yeah, I you know, I, I and then you sort of I I just you got to think that you start questioning life in general but I so let's talk about sort of the the camaraderie and and the uh, the spirit uh, what is the and we'll get to some of the individual players that stand out in your mind in a second but but how do you just how would you describe sort of the day-to-day was it was it drudgery was it always never anything you know never ever something was different every day were people excited or enervated by the process you mentioned obviously people are living on the edge or on the rim so to speak but what's sort of the general sort of tenor of of the day-to-day, both in and on and off the court? Uh, happiness, sorrow, uh, fear, what? Yes, all of those. And they can change in an instant. And it depends on the player. Um, when the team is winning, people are happy. When the team is losing, people aren't happy. That's true, you know, with any team. When players are playing, they're happy. When they're not playing, they're unhappy. Everybody wants to play more. Nobody gets as many minutes as they want. Um, so there's always, and that's true in the NBA too. And, you know, that's true in high school. Everybody wants to play. Nobody wants to sit on the bench and everybody wants to win. So, uh, over the course of a season, you're going to have ups and downs to use the cliche and everybody goes through it, um, including the coaches. So it's never the same. Like I said, you know, our workday drudgery is, is kind of the same every day we go to work, we come home, it's the same old stuff, but in basketball, especially, you know, when guys were fighting for their basketball lives, they're all basically on one-year contracts. They, they've got a six-month job, and they don't know what they're going to do at the end of those six months. Everything is very heightened. It's, it's very intense. So, again, when things are going well, then they're happy. When things aren't going well, they're not. Um, and being maybe less professional than they should be, a lot of them aren't afraid to bitch and moan and cry and complain and threaten to quit. Uh, this team actually was, was fairly close. In fact, uh, as I remember, uh, Gerald Oliver, who had been in the league for a long time, said it was probably the closest team he had ever coached. So the players all got along with each other for the most part. They weren't necessarily mad when you know player X played more than player Y. They were more mad at the coaching staff or themselves or the situation or just the CBA blues had gotten to them. So uh, part of the book, just flipping through it again, it's remarkable how moods change. Um, One day I could be writing just how down and depressed and and miserable everybody is. And the next day it's a new day and they're ready to go and they're, uh, they're in the gym and they're practicing and they're having fun. And, that's sort of a, a general way that athletes sort of approach things. To be a good athlete, you have to be able to put yesterday behind you and, and focus on today. And that's kind of how it went. How about your mood through all this? 
my mood was was I was just having so much fun. Um, you know, I was I was a high school athlete and a college club athlete, but I'd never been a pro, obviously. So to be, and you know, I've covered pro sports. To actually be a part of the team, though you know, not actually a teammate, but to be able to be in on the meetings and in the locker rooms and on the buses and on the planes. It was a blast. It was fun. Uh, the travel did get tiring, like I said, but it certainly was less tiring for me than for these guys. I didn't have to play a 48-minute game. I wasn't six foot six. It was just great. I loved every minute of it. How about some of the players that stand out uh, in your mind from that season, both whether they were with the team for the entire season or, or various cups of coffee? Any Any particular names or situations that they were involved in sort of stand out in your mind and you're in the haze of I don't know what, almost 30 years now of this book? Yeah, well, the, the one player who kind of became a through story um, was a guy named Steve Sharina. And he had just come out of St. John's University. He had played on the great St. John's teams with Chris Mullen and uh, Bill Wennington. But he was essentially a bench warmer. He didn't play much. So, so he's the classic CBA guy. He just wants to see how far his basketball can take him. He... He comes to tryout camp. He doesn't get signed or drafted by the CBA. The CBA could also draft players. I, I, we haven't talked about that, but like the NBA, they could draft player rights. He was undrafted. He came to tryout camp. George Carl never heard of him. And he just impressed everybody enough to make, um, you know, training camp. And he just kept playing well. George Carl kept saying, I, I want to cut this guy, but he won't let me. Um, you know, he was, Steve is, I think, 6'4", six, 6'5". Uh, no great skill that stands out, but real strong heart, real hustle, great team player, really nice guy. He was a really likable kid then. Uh, he's, a, he's a great 50-year-old man now. I just saw him a couple of months ago. Um, but so he's the, he's the classic CBA story, and he, he made it through the whole season, even though, as uh, at one point in the book, George Carroll said, Steve, you know, I, I, I almost cut you eight times this year. And Steve said, yeah, you almost cut me before I even showed up. Somehow he managed to hang on. But it was a difficult season. He was benched a couple of times. He was put on injured reserve, uh, which is sort of a, a sneaky way that the league got players in and out of lineups, even though he wasn't really hurt. They would pretend that somebody was hurt and they'd bring in a new player. ESPN had a contract for a couple of games a year, and there was a game in Albany that ESPN was going to televise. And his girlfriend had come up from New York, and I think her parents or his parents had come up from New York. And right before the game, he was basically put on injured reserve. And he didn't even stay for the game. He got in his car and he drove home, and he was, you know, really depressed. He thought, well, maybe this is the end of my basketball career. Didn't turn out that way. He came back. Uh, George put him back in the lineup, and he had a string of really good games. Um, but again, he was sort of in and out of the lineup the whole way, but he made it through the whole year. And so his story is sort of indicative of what, to me, the CBA is really all about. Yeah, there are some guys that go to the NBA. Yeah, there's some guys that are coming back from the NBA. But, but the guys like him, who are just really trying to hang on and see what they can make of their basketball lives, was really interesting to me. And, and it happened that he's also a terrific guy. And like I said, we stayed close after and, and we've run in, into each other a little over the years. Um, so his story stands out with me. Um, other players. I mean, you, you could pick any one of them. I mean, you, you flip through the book. Anybody come to your mind that you uh, remember standing out? Well, I, I mean, I think uh, Dirk Minifield, Doug. Right. Some of these are names that uh, you think, or uh, Greg Grissom. I mean, these are these are names of, of folks that uh, they do ring a bell, uh, not and but not quite sure how and why, um, and and you know, but 
you know, some of them had their cups of coffee or multiple cups of coffee or their 10-day contracts in the NBA, and and some kind of just became sort of the journeyman. I, you know, I guess that's just sort of the story of minor league sports generally, but I, I guess I'm just sort of fascinated with sort of, uh, you know, the phenomenon of how, you know, players uh, can get, you know, themselves up for games and the travel and the rigor. They're certainly not getting paid. But I got to think that's, you know, for folks especially looking to sort of uh, ascend upward, uh, it's a great learning opportunity. And, and frankly, you, you can't let down because you never know when there's going to be an NBA scout in the stands. Um, frankly, I think in some of these cases, you might you should be able to pick them out because, you know, the relatively thin crowds in some of these cities. But you, you never know, right? And it's also you never know the situation of the NBA teams and, and you know, their situation where they need a player, you know, toot sweet, right? And, you know, it's that one time, that one thing. And, and you know, this book is filled with some of those little sort of, I guess, I don't want to call them chances, chance encounters or situations. But, you know, to your point like earlier, I thought the title of the book, right? This is, you're living on the edge. Sometimes that can go in your favor. And I, frankly, more often than not, it tends to not go in your favor. That's right. And that's, and that's what George Carl tried to preach the whole season is that, People are always watching you. You don't know when your chance is going to come, and you have to be ready both physically, of course, but also emotionally. You can't – he was constantly fighting them to not let the CBA Blues get to them, to not get down, to stay professional. Uh, he was always comparing what was happening in the CBA to what happened in the NBA, how practices were so much more intense, how the scouting was so much more intense, how the competition was so much more intense, how you can't get away up there – uh, th- this is telling. He, he, he would call the NBA the league, and he would call the CBA this league. And that was all the difference in the world. He'd say, if you want to get to the league, you have to do X, Y, and Z. Now, all this bullshit that you're having to do in this league is not going to do you, it's not going to serve you well. And if you don't overcome that and get your heads on straight and do what I tell you to do, um, you know, you're never going to get out of here. Of course, talent has a lot to do with that. But it's often attitude. It's certainly luck. You just have to be the right kind of player for the right kind of team at the right moment. But a lot of it is attitude because when a coach or a GM calls George Carl and says, you know, I need a point guard for 10 days. Who do you like? George is going to tell him, you know, who's playing well. And uh, that's how it worked throughout the league. The GMs would call the teams and say, you know, we need, we need a power forward for 10 days or we just we need a practice player, whatever it is. Who's, who's showing up? Who's doing it right? And he would try to get them to keep their heads on. And it's just not easy. Now, again, these are young men. You know, they're not, a lot of them aren't fully mature. Some of them may have been in the league and they're a little pissed off that they're not, so they got some attitude. Some think they should be in the league and they're not. They're not playing as much in the CBA as they think they should. And, and some are just goof-offs. Like you mentioned Greg Grissom. He's a guy, he's 6'11", foot 6'11", foot white guy, who called himself a slow, fat white guy, which is what he was. But he had some, some good skill. He was a decent center, power forward. When he put his mind to it, he could be a force on the court. But he never stayed in shape. He drank too much. He was constantly being belittled by George Carl, get in shape. Some guy calls me from the NBA, uh, and he says, I hear Grissom's fat. What am I going to tell him? And Griss would say, yeah, I know, I know. I got to get in shape. Maybe tomorrow. And he never did. Um, so, you know, here's a guy that might have, with a different attitude, might have had more of a career than he did. Uh, the league is filled with guys like that. Dirk Minifield, you mentioned. He had, a, he had a strong college career. He had played in the NBA, and drug problems derailed him. He came out of rehab 
and he was looking for a second chance or maybe even his third chance. I don't even know. And the CBA was a chance for him to show the NBA that, you know, he had gotten his head on straight. He had cleaned up. He was still a great player or he could be a great player. And the CBA was his chance to show it. It didn't work out for him. He was not entirely, uh, he was straight, you know, drug wise, but, it, it, but he was still battling some psychological demons, I think, and uh, didn't play up to his potential. Uh, he played out the string, but basically didn't give it his all. And I, I think that's the last time he played. So again, like you say, there are names you vaguely remember uh, that are trying to keep their career going. And again, you know, why do they put up with this, you say, for no money and all this drudgery? Because it beats working, you know, they're, they're still playing basketball. They still have the dream. They're still a small chance. I mean, wouldn't you or I do that if we could as well? It comes to the point where you have to decide either the dream dies or I just can't put up with what it's going to take to get there. And every guy gets to that point at a different time. Give me a sense of the, uh, the fans, uh, how the uh, team uh, was so frankly beloved relative to just about all the other CBA franchises, uh, both before, during, and after what was about the team and the fans. It seems like there was kind of a, a strong bond there. There was. And uh, as we talked about, I think it was a mixture of success, luck, uh, a point in time where everything just came together. You know, they've tried to recreate it. The team folded in 92, I believe. I don't know if you want to get into that part of it yet, but, uh, but it's come back a couple of times. So, so essentially what happened was, so 88, um, 89, you know, they're coming off a championship year. They have a good year, but they don't, they lose in the first round of the playoffs. Uh, next year, they have some success. The year after that, George Carl comes back and coaches them again. They set a league record of 50 victories. But by then, Albany had built an arena downtown, a big modern new arena. Um, so it sat like 17,000 people. Now, they played in the armory, which we haven't really described yet. The armory was a building that was built in the 19th century. It was literally an armory for the U.S. Army. Uh, it was 100 and something years old. It's on the National Register of Historic Places. And it sat 3,000 in folding chairs that they had to set up along the, the court. Uh, it was cold. They didn't put the heat on, so practices were often freezing. You could see your breath while, the team, while you were practicing. Uh, there, were, uh, there was a track around it, so joggers would come running around the track while they were practicing. The locker rooms were in the basement. The shower was in the public restroom, so the players would have to walk out of the locker room, which was essentially a storage closet, and go through the crowd that was milling about after the game to get to the showers. Um, you know, this, it's a minor league gym, really. It was, it, there, were, there were high school gyms that were better than this place. But it had so much character and so much charm, and you put 3,000 people in there, and it's still to the rafters. And if you've got a championship team, I mean, it's a fun place to be. Sounds like a tough place to play against uh, if, you're, if you're visiting, too, right? Absolutely, yes. By then, most of the other teams had new arenas downtown, you know, fancy uh, 10 to whatever, 15,000-seat arenas. And they were empty. Um, you know, 3,000 people in the armory is, is they're, they're, you know, jammed. 3,000, 4,000 people, they're raising the roof. 3,000 people in a 17,000-seat downtown arena, you know, you're lost. You lose all the energy. You lose all the emotion. You lose all the focus. And that was sort of the beginning of the end of the Patroons when they moved to the big arena downtown. They still, at first, drew their same, you know, 3,000 or so people. But again, you're sitting in, a, in essentially an empty arena. You can't hear crowd noise because it's just lost in the echoes. 
And within two years, they essentially, they were sold and they moved out of town. They moved to another city. Um, a few years after that, the CBA itself folded. Um, but they've resurrected it a couple of times, at least they've tried to. And it's, it's never really taken. They did it once, I don't know, around 2008 maybe, and they got a season or two. Um, and then, then they're doing it again. The CBA is no longer around, but there is now an, another Albany Patroons team playing in the Armory again in a league that's now called the Basketball League. Um, the Patroons actually won the, the championship this year. But, but it's not the same. You know, you can't recreate the past. There was just something about that time and that place and those teams that everything coalesced and it, it really became the place to play in the CBA. Everybody acknowledged that. In fact, you know, it's not just because I was here. It was people around the league said they hoped they could play to uh, Albany. There was one time we were coming back from a, a practice game in um, Massachusetts, Pittsfield, Massachusetts. And as you drive from Massachusetts over the New York border and you approach Albany, you, you take a turn on the highway and you see the Albany skyline. Now, the Albany skyline is not Manhattan. It's not Chicago. It's not San Francisco. You know, but it's a, it's a nice little skyline. And Gerald Oliver, who was a, a CBA lifer for the most part, was, was waxing poetic about, oh, Albany, so many players want to play here. This is the place everybody wants to go. It is the Los Angeles and the New York of the CBA. And at the time, this was sort of the beginning of the season. This was the preseason. And I was, you know, really? This is Albany. It's a nice little town, but it's Albany. Uh, but it was true compared to the other places in the CBA, also all very nice little towns. Albany had a reputation in that time, in that place as being the place to be in the CBA. Of those other towns, uh, which ones stuck out uh, of the of the road trips that you were able to make uh, as either being uh, interesting uh, for positive or maybe negative reasons? <laughs> the towns all tend to be the same after a while. You know, um, players go, they check into the cheap hotel, they kill time by going to the local mall, uh, they watch movies, they go to the arena, they practice, they play. So, so the towns themselves, there wasn't often a lot of time to to see. Um, what I remember is sort of the events. There was a game, I believe it was in Pensacola, where uh, they had given out little soft plastic basketball, you know, giveaway things. And there was a, a moment in the game where uh, the uh, Pensacola player was called for a foul, and the, and the players or the fans started booing, and a couple of them started tossing these fan these little basketballs on the court, and their coach comes out, grabs the microphone, and in his wacky attempt to calm the crowd, says something like, I understand your reasonable or your, your uh, understandable frustration with the refereeing. So the referee, of course, doesn't want to hear that. He runs up to the coach, slaps a tee on him, and tosses him out of the game, at which point every fan in the building starts throwing their little basketballs down on the court. And though the balls were you know, soft and they weren't going to hurt anybody, it was a little bit frightening. And everybody is standing there, all the patrons are standing there, kind of watching these balls come at them until Steve Sharina yells, George, let's get the fuck out of here. So George says, yeah, 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 everybody in the locker room. And they all run to the locker room, and they wait for the chaos to calm down, and they finally get back out and they play the game. So, you know, it's minor league stuff like that, that stands out, not the the towns themselves, but sort of the events that happened in those towns that were pretty damn funny sometimes. Uh, you mentioned the refs. Uh, what about the refs and all of this, right? Because not only, not only are refs not necessarily loved anyway, regardless of what sport and, and at what level, but here you are, you're playing in, you know, uh, arguably a, 
uh, a B league, so to speak, in basketball. I mean, I, what's that life like? Or did you not get close to them or, or get into their psyche? I didn't get close to them, um, but it's, it's probably not much different. Um, you know, they're not good enough to be in the NBA either. So, you, you know, the leagues tend to generate the same quality. The players and the refs are, are the same quality. You know, I play in a beer league <laughs> and the refs are as bad as we are. So you, you sort of find your level, I guess. So the refs were bad. They were inconsistent. Uh, there, there was one uh, time I remember, again, I mentioned Greg Ballard, who was an NBA player. He comes down, and it happened to be a game in the Armory, and uh, Bob Ryan, the, the great Boston Globe writer, happened to be in town for the game. And Greg Ballard's playing, and he gets called for traveling. And after the game, George Carl and Bob Ryan are talking, and <laughs> George says, can you believe they called that move on Ballard? And, and Ryan says, yeah, I've seen him make that same move for 10 years in the NBA, and they never called it on him, but they call it on him here. So, you know, that's, that's the kind of stuff you're dealing with in the CBA. All right. Well, let's let's round uh, let's round the corner on this. I, I, give me a sense of the CBA uh, generally in all of this, right? Because the story is not only that of the patroons and and Carl and the players, and and but it's also about life, you know, in the league itself. This is a time eighty eight eighty nine when the CBA was kind of you know there there was some movement and some uh, expansion and some, some, some decent branding. I mean, you mentioned ESPN for a couple of games on television. It seems like uh, this is around the time when it, things were kind of trying to sort of gel a little bit, maybe even get things to a, a higher level and, 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 and growth, uh, sort of spurt, uh, for this league. Uh, that's my vague recollection of, of that time. Is, is that right? Or what you remember? Yeah. I mean, it was, Looking back, I think it was the high water mark. Nobody knew it at the time. Of course, everybody thought, well, maybe this can get bigger and better. Uh, it didn't. And, you know, I'm not 100% sure why that is. Um, it just happened to be that this was as far as it got. This was the, I guess you would say, the golden age of the CBA. Um, expansion maybe didn't help. Uh, the NBA. I'm not sure exactly when, but uh, they decided to form their own minor league. You know, as you said, it was called the D League or the, uh, I'm not sure even what it's called now, but they sort of withdrew their support of the CBA and decided, you know, we can run a minor league ourselves and have more control over it. So that drew some of the better players away from the CBA. Um, it just, you know, like, like a lot of minor leagues, as you, as your, uh, podcast knows, for some reason, these things just don't stay. And it can be a host of reasons you can put your finger on. And sometimes it can just be a mystery. It just faded. Uh, I did not follow the CBA into the future. So I, you know, I can't really speak to exactly what brought it down, but this was the high watermark of the CBA for whatever reason. So the, the team wins the division. They, they sort of uh, bow out relatively early in the playoffs relative to what they had done the season before. So how does this sort of – how does the Patroons season wrap up? Uh, obviously, there's some tragedy in the league itself, uh, which maybe we want to talk about. And, and how does this book project uh, kind of uh, you know get si- signed, sealed, and then ultimately delivered – uh, into the world, and and I guess I'll ask what the reception is and was, and uh, and all of that, be, having been your first uh, book, and and all the excitement and or anticipation of such. So it's a lot to ask in one question, but feel free to start wherever you want. So so they yes they they have a good season, um, but the, but the, by the end of the season the team is in disarray. George Carl has brought in a lot of players. Um, he's mixed and matched. He's 
disrupted a lot of the rotations. Uh, players who have been here all year are resentful of the players that have come in late. The team loses all its cohesion, and they lose in the first round of the playoffs. The season ends, and players go their separate ways. Um, you know, like I said earlier, these guys are on six-month contracts, and when the season ends, you got to go look for another job. So, so part of the book is about all right, what do you do next? My lead character is, is this coach, Gerald Oliver. I open and close with the book. Uh, the book opens when Gerald Oliver is looking for a job. He's been, he's in his fifties. He's been a coach his whole life in the college, in the pros. Um, but he's still living a year to year existence. He's got to find a job. He manages to find a job with Albany at the end of the year. Same thing. They're all basically George Carl doesn't know what he's going to do. Gerald Oliver doesn't know what he's going to do. All these players don't know what they're going to do. So many of them just go off not knowing, um, it turns out that Gerald, George decides to take a job in Europe. He coaches over in Madrid. Uh, the Patroons keep Gerald Oliver, and they name him the coach for the next year. And some of the players come back. A lot of them don't. And it's just you do it all over again. You know, what am I going to do next season? How do I, what's my job? So the, the book itself, as I said, I, I wrote as I went. Uh, I did not have the luxury of taking a lot of time. I basically, I kept it as a diary and I submitted every month as a chapter to my publisher and they would edit it and we'd work on it, but there wasn't a whole lot of revising. And in fact, the book was already in production as the season was ending. So as I remember it, I had to kind of hustle through the last week or two and uh, to get the final story in and wrap it all up as the book was going to press. Um, you mentioned a tragedy. While the book was in production, the uh, the commissioner at the time was a was a guy named Jay Ramsdell, and he tragically died in a plane crash in Chicago over that summer. So before the book came out, uh, you know, I put a little dedication in the front, uh, kind of dedicating the book to him. I didn't really have a lot of contact with him because my I saw my job as being with the team. So when the team interacted with him, he would be in the story, but, but it was not about interviewing him and getting his take on what the CBA was, but still, you know, it was a terrible loss. He was a very young man. He had done a lot to improve the conditions of the league. He was very well respected. Um, and that was a, you know, kind of a sad footnote to this book. Uh, so to finish up, so I, you know, I finished the book, I send the chapters in, it takes a few months to produce a book. Um, and it came out to generally very favorable reviews, like most books on the minor leagues. It didn't sell a whole hell of a lot, but those who bought it seemed to have liked it. And, uh, you know, for me, it was a very proud moment. You know, you only have one first book and this was mine and I'm very proud of it. And I think it captures a moment in time in a league that doesn't exist anymore and players who are now middle-aged and older and, um, you know, they look back on it fondly. As I said, I saw Steve Sharina a few months ago, and I asked him, you know, did I get it right? And he said 100%. So that made me feel really good. He lived it. I just watched it. But he thinks that I, I captured it at least the way he saw it. So, you know, I'm pretty proud of that. I, I love the book, and, and it, it, I've had it for almost 30 years now sitting on my bookshelf. And the, the, just even the cover of it, I think, is great. There's a, there's a, it's a tremendous uh, dark color photo, and you see three of the players. I, I can't identify which ones they are. I'll tell you, that's, it's, on the left, it's Dirk Minifield. The center is Steve Sharina. And the right is Clinton Smith, who is a whole character and a half. He should have been a book himself, who we didn't get to talk to. But if you look in the back, there are two people sitting in the stands in the dark. I, I'm one of them, just for a little trivia. If uh, you know, you're ever uh, 
actually it'll never come up anywhere so never mind but <laughs> i'm one of the guys i'm one of the guys posed in the stands that's hilarious <laughs> because the uh and you see all the the sort of dark green uh folding chairs that you were mentioning and that uh, obviously that was not one of the more uh, well attended days or evenings well that was that was a setup shot that was to capture the feeling of the cba in fact albany was almost always sold out you know that was sort of a uh, it's not a fair representation of albany but it, it's a fair representation of some of the other arenas. They were never that sparsely populated, but there were plenty of empty seats on many nights. So, so the, obviously the picture is supposed to give you a sense that these guys are doing their best and they're not getting a whole lot of attention. All right. Well, there we go. We finally, it took us an hour and change to get to the expose that we were looking for. Was this photo <laughs> on the cover staged or, or an action real shot? All right, Guilty so- as charged. <laughs> So, all right. So I, now just a couple of curiosities uh, uh, to, to wrap up, um, if you'll indulge me. Uh, the what? So the book comes out, obviously, it's uh, I'm sure you did some promotion for it. You, you probably, like most authors, are concerned that the publisher is not promoting it enough or, uh, you know, you, you're hoping it's it's going to sell and, and it doesn't sell as much as maybe you want it to. Um, the book is out of print. And as our audience knows, at the top and the, and the bottom of our show, we've already, you know, we'll promote it, of course, some more. But it's certainly available out there if you can find it and look for it. I mean, it's, there are plenty of used bookstores out there. But what happens uh, to a book like this once it uh, once it goes out of its uh, its print run? Do, do you get to keep those uh, those rights? Does the publisher, whether the publisher even exists? And what happens to the to your story, given that it's not in print anymore? That's a heck of a question. I'll have to ask my agent. Um, it's never really been an issue. Um, for, for a while, I kept the rights. Um, it, the book was actually optioned for film a couple of times. Unfortunately, it never went anywhere. Nothing ever happened. But, um, you know, so uh, I did negotiate with a couple of film production companies to see if we could make a movie out of it. Sadly, it didn't happen. Uh, at this point, now that it's out of print, I'm not sure who has the rights. It might be me. Call me. If anybody wants to call me or call my agent, we can talk. Well, that's it's kind of part. I mean, you'd be, look, David, you'd be surprised who listens to the show. I mean, we're two plus years into this now, and, and I, I'm amazed now at, at sort of the velocity of, of the people, and, and they tell two friends and so on and so on. And, uh, and look, we, we've stumbled on, across a, a number of different uh, stories and situations that, you know, either directly in a, in a sort of a, a direct telling, uh, you know, historical presence of the story, or maybe as a backdrop. Uh, perhaps like Will Farrell did with the ABA, you know, as a as a comic uh, scene set for, you know, the life and times either of a period like the late 80s or or minor league basketball in general or, or you know, that kind of stuff. And then the, the hilarity that ensues, you know, you'd be surprised. And I, you know, I, my hope is that uh, a few more people uh, in this conversation will discover uh, either remember or or maybe, you know, newly uh uh, find this thing called the CBA and the, the Albany Patroons, which, as you alluded to, right, is a brand and a basketball team that uh, still lives on, a, a, admittedly, in a even smaller, more minor league kind of way. But th- th- there's something there that I would imagine people in the capital region certainly remember, at least the name, the brand. Maybe there were some that would that do actually remember the team. Um, and that's, you know, we kind of revel in some of that stuff and, and you never know, frankly, what's, uh, what's going to transpire. Hence the question and, and maybe, maybe a few contacts to come from it. We hope. Yeah. Well, I hope so too. Like I say, I've, other people have thought it would make a movie. I think it'd be a great movie. Um, as far as reading the book, you know, you don't have to know the players or the coaches or even the team. It's really a story about minor league sports and minor league sports stories are timeless. You can watch Bull Durham, you know, every year, and it's always funny. You can watch, um, I'm, I'm drawing a blank, but there are other minor leagues, Slapshot. 
Um, you know, these are fiction, of course, but you get a sense of what minor league life is like. I think this book gives us a sense of what minor league life is like. It teaches, it, it tells you about some real characters. I think you get to learn about some of the people and the lives they lived during these six months. Um, you know, their highs and their lows, uh, their interactions, how they deal with stress, some well, some not so well. Uh, it is hilarious at times. Um, it's really poignant at times. And um, so, yeah, like I said, I, I think it's, it's, not, it's not about wins and losses. It's not about who shot the most, you know, three-pointers, though there is some game stuff, of course, because that is what they're there for. But there's a lot less actual basketball in there than, um, you know, so, so you don't need to know who the players are. What you really need is an interest in this slice of life and this world that most of us don't get a chance to look at very closely. Well, I think uh, this book plus the uh, the documentary that came out, I think last year, they called the Minor League Mecca, which I have yet to see, uh, which is about the patroons from, uh, I think, a couple of seasons. I think maybe after yours. No, actually, it was before. Yeah, well, it, the, the, yes, this film talks about the beginning of the team through these years and up to its its first demise. Um, yes, a local uh, guy put together a documentary. As far as I know, he's he's trying to pitch it to uh, distributors or film festivals. Um, I'm not sure how he's done with it. It's a, it's a nice film. Um, it's a documentary. It's, uh, there's some great stories in that too. I, you know, I hope it, I hope it gains a wide audience. They had a screening here in Albany over the winter, uh, that George Carl came in, uh, Steve Sharina came in, other players from the past came in. Um, Phil Jackson couldn't come, but he, uh, sent a video, you know, uh, welcomer and not a welcome, but he, you know, he said hello by video, um, wishing he could have been there. He doesn't travel much anymore because he's got such bad hips. Um, but it, but it was a great event. And, and to your point, Albany still loves the Patroons. It was incredibly well attended. It got a lot of press. People remember that era very fondly. They, I mean, they keep trying to resurrect it. That's how much they, uh, think of it. It hasn't taken though, because you just can't recreate the past. All right. Last thing. Uh, what are you up to now? What are you uh, working on? Uh, any ideas in and around uh, sports or basketball again, or just in general, what, what are you up to and uh, where can we find more about you and your various doings? Well, uh, I'm still a freelance writer. I don't do a whole lot of sports anymore. The, the business of publishing has changed as, as you may or may not know. Just a so there, isn't a whole, <laughs> there isn't a whole lot of outlets out there for freelance sports writers, uh, at least not to pay a living wage. Um, uh, the fun thing is though, uh, I'm actually, I have a new book coming out early next year. It's my first book in 25 years. Um, I have been a contributing writer for a local magazine. Uh, I live in the Hudson Valley of New York state. Uh, so the magazine is appropriately called Hudson Valley magazine. And I've been writing uh, about history, the history of the Hudson Valley for the past 10 or 12 years. Um, from, you know, basically from the age of the dinosaurs when the Hudson Valley was in the middle of the ocean uh, up until present time. And I've covered all kinds of things. The Hudson Valley is a remarkably rich area for history, you know, the, from the Revolutionary War to Henry Hudson himself to um, just remarkable things have happened to the robber barons who lived in the valley and their big houses along the river. So anyway, uh, I'm having a, a slew of my articles collected into a book. Uh, it will be called the Hudson Valley, the first 250 million years, and it's being published by Globe Pequot Press, and it comes out early 2020. 
So like I said, that's my first book in 25 years. So I'm very excited about that. Well, congratulations. And uh, it's uh, ironic that uh, we're, we're dragging you back to your very first book. Uh, there seems to be some kind of balance to that. Now, it, now doesn't there? Yes. I mean, I never, I never said I would never write a book again, but I never said I would either. So this has been a very um, happy coincidence. And, uh, you know, I'm really looking forward to seeing it again, going on the book tours, which are a lot of fun. Um, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's great because books, I, I write for magazines, I write for uh, websites. They're very ephemeral. Books last forever. Like you said, you've had a book, this book on your shelf for however many, 20, 30 years. Magazines are gone in a month. Websites disappear instantly. Books are, you know, kind of forever. So I'm still old fashioned enough to like being able to pick something up and look at it and flip pages and and go back to it later in life. And uh, so it's fun to be back in that book world again. Well, I'm just sorry I didn't get to uh, have an excuse to uh, to to do something to kind of uh, remember it and talk about it until now, until I discovered this podcasting thing. Um, but uh, I highly encourage uh, uh, all of our listeners to uh, to find uh, a copy of this book. It is it is generally available, obviously, and sadly, David's not going to financially benefit at least until it gets reissued. But uh, it is out there. It is a uh, it's a it's a scream of a read, and um, I'm hopeful that uh, this episode will. Uh, I will have done my job if somebody in when your new book comes out next year comes up to one of your book signings with this book instead and looks for its signature. <laughs> I would love that. That would be wonderful. And yes, there are copies on Amazon. Um, they will not set you back much, a couple of bucks probably at this point. Um, and uh, I think I think you'll have a fun time reading it. Even my wife read it, and you know she she has no interest in sports whatsoever, and she was laughing out loud. She was asking me questions. Now, of course, she's my wife. You might say, well, she has to do that. Well, you don't know my wife, so she doesn't have to do that, but she did. So I think um, if she if it's good enough for her, I think it'll be good enough for your readers. It, it really is, and I don't say I say this with all humility. It's pretty damn funny. All right. Our thanks to uh, David Levine. What a uh, fascinating conversation and an equally fascinating topic. Again, the name of the book is called Life on the Rim, A Year in the Continental Basketball Association. It is sadly and tragically out of print. It was originally published by Macmillan. And while we work on trying to figure out a way to uh, get the rights for this book back and hopefully at some point reissue uh, the book for more people to enjoy. Uh, And by the way, there are a lot of other titles out there that sort of fallen into that sort of... uh, into that realm, and uh, that's going to be a little uh, sort of mini crusade of ours as the uh, months roll on. So stay tuned for uh, some activity around that. But in the meantime, do yourself a favor and get a copy of this book uh, in used fashion. Uh, probably the best way to do that is to go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Search up this episode with uh, David Levine, uh, and you'll see a link to Amazon and maybe a few other sources where you can very inexpensively find a used copy uh, of this book. This book has been sitting on my bookshelf for God, almost 25 years now. It stood out because uh, it's it's a great story uh, of a full year's uh, ride into this crazy league that, uh, you know, as the years pile on, people sort of uh, forget. And uh, it was seminal in many, many respects for uh, some of the uh, the classic people and names and coaches and players uh, that came out of that league and uh, into NBA and beyond greatness. But uh, again, go to our website at goodseatstillavailable.com and you can buy a copy of that book used. And Uh, You can also do a bunch of other things on our website, too, while you're there. Why don't you? Uh, You can find all of our social media feeds there. On Twitter, you'll find us at Good Seats Still. 
on Instagram, of course, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, you will find a, uh, a link to our Facebook page that's devoted to our little show. You can uh, send us some email, either directly from the site or just uh, directly from your email server at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, you can also, on our website, sign up for our little weekly newsletter, why don't you? Uh, that's our little sort of hint uh, into what's going to be uh, on the show the following week. So maybe a little early advance warning. I should be, you'd be interested in that. And uh, lots more to come again on that website. So bookmark that and come back early and often. Good seats still available. Dot com. One last thing, of course, we want to say our uh, our continued thanks to our friends at Podfly Productions. Of course, in particular, our friend Jerry Payne and his team at Podfly. Again, you can find out more about them at podfly.net. Okay, that's it for me. I appreciate your listening. And uh, until next week, we'll see you. And until then, our ticket window is now closed. Take care. <laughs> <laughs>